Welcome to The Mushroom's Apprentice. I have the great pleasure of welcoming back my dear friends, Steve and Chris Krimi of Logos Sophia Books. And that website is logossophiabooks.com. Today, they are going to discuss truth, beauty, and the good, which is also known as the three transcendentals. We are going to get right to it. So welcome. Thanks, Shona. Thanks, Shona. Hello. Good to see you. You just dive always. right into the deep end of the pool. We're going there. We're <laughs> going there. I mean, you guys have so much wisdom, and I'm going to try to keep my mouth shut this time. No, and no. This time, no. No. Oh. This is a discussion. So, uh, okay, yeah, but I know. Yes, you know. Yeah. You dare. And, uh... <laughs> you guys have so much wisdom, and so I'll let you just roll with it and so truth beauty and the good where where did that even originate yeah well you, you know our publishing company our motto That's our motto our motto is uh, what is our motto <laughs> <laughs> our motto is that beauty is not a luxury it is a necessity and you know we got that from Sayed Hosein we Nasser. got it from the from the writer Sayed Hosein Nasser professor uh, of Islamic studies at George, was it George Washington? George, George Washington, Washington University, University and somebody whose books are yes. really, really wonderful. Um, well, let's just, I just want to say, yeah, 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 because his book, Knowledge and the Sacred, is like one big long run on sentence on knowledge, beauty, the good, all of that. And it's brilliant. It's, it's, not easy to digest but if you just take it in small bites it is astonishingly helpful yeah. and what is the name of that book again knowledge, knowledge and the sacred and the sacred knowledge and the sacred his last name is spelled n-a-s-r um he was well this this will this will be something of a lead-in so he was at the time of the uh the, the, the iranian revolution of the mullahs, which was another CIA op, you know, um, Khomeini and the boys were all, you know, being fed in France there. And when, when uh, you know, well, the, the 54 revolution in Iran was done by them. And then, and then by the time of um, Carter years, what was that, be 78, I guess it was, um, when the, uh, when they took over the embassy there. So he was actually the, he was a, a Sufi, Brilliant scholar, um, Sufi. Yes, very much so. And and he was um, and he was the head of education in Iran. So Iran had this beautiful traditional um, education that would you know go back into understanding the Persian times there and things like that. What happened is at the time I don't know remembers about that time, but the Shah was ill and he needed um, some sort of cancer treatment, I believe it was. And it's in Japan. So he was brought, well, he was he was getting treatment out of the country. At the same time, he and the um, the, the, the wife of the Shah, the Sharina, I don't know what they call her, is, uh, was, he went to an exhibit of Islamic art in Japan. So when the, um, so when the revolution came, he was out of town, as was the, the wife of the Shah. So, um, you know, and then that completely, you know, changed Iran and, and the, uh, so the, their, their education system went from something that exalted beauty, you know, to 
beating up anybody who, you know, who, who was against uh, Sharia law that, you know, um, you know, so, so it's an overturning of, of you know, of, the, of what would be the truth or the knowledge of, of say, Sufism and, uh, and the true education. And so that got all turned over in Iran and, you know, that's still playing out now. Um, both of them were funded by the CIA, who I think we'll get into is also funded ugliness, the, uh, the antithesis of in truth, art. beauty, and good. Yes, all the artwork. Right, you know, mm -hmm. and we can get into that too because it's so much fun. And um, so, so anyway, NASA wrote this book called Knowledge and Sacred. We highly recommend it. It's it's one of those books uh, that that you know, reading it is a meditation in itself. You know, just the just the fact the way it's structured, things like that. A number of people mm -hmm. wrote this way. Gurdjieff wrote this way. Um, Henri Corbin, another one of our famous favorite writers, who's uh, French esoteric writer. They write these very long sentences that require a certain amount of concentration, you know, and, and to follow Focus. them, you know, and then follow dependent clauses and things like that. You can't, you know, it's not like, you know, bathroom reading or something like that. But he also wrote a book called Islamic Art and Spirituality. Mm -hmm. That book completely turned me on to observing brutality in architecture and the difference between beauty and brutality in architecture and then I that was my wake-up period that was in the late 80s early 90s and I'd be driving to work and just looking at let's say a gas station for instance the building itself when you look at it, it's ugly. Now, in the 1920s and 30s, the gas stations, if you remember those old pictures, they were these sweet little like English cottage, a little pointed roof and stucco building and an arched doorway. And then we switched over Rounded in the pumps. Yeah, in the 1950s yeah. over to the hard lines and the sleek look. And then I started to look on my way to work and I saw, oh, I'm looking at this building and it's, it was a closed down gas station and it was cinder block, ugly. But I looked at it and I realized, oh, okay, guess what? That can be fixed very easily because if you look at it like something that's just not finished, if you look at it and you put a dome on top, you pull out a roof and you put portico and columns, you've got a classic Greek structure, right? The fix can be easy, right. but there was no interest in beauty at that time. And so what we have is a complete landscape of brutal architecture that is soul deadening. And that book, Islamic Art and Spirituality by Sayyid Hossein Nasser, is the one that woke me up to the importance of beauty and beauty in everyday objects. So he was explaining that in Islam, every article in your, let's say, just take, for instance, your kitchen. Your silverware should be beautiful. Mm -hmm. your, your implements or your cooking, it should be beautiful. They should add to and feed the senses on every level. I couldn't agree more. Right. So instead of plastic containers and really hideous coffee mugs, please, what do you see in Turkey? You see these delicate feminine shaped tea chai glasses instead of a tea cup 
which is pretty. I, I like the nice Victorian pretty teacups too. But what they have in Turkey, it's ubiquitous, is this small cup. It looks like a fruit, fruit uh, glass to us, like for fruit juice. It's just a clear glass container, but it's, it's like wasp wasted. It goes in in the center and it's fluted at the top and that rounded at the bottom. Okay. Right. right. And that's what you drink your tea or your chai in, in Turkey, everywhere you go in Turkey. It's this delicate, beautiful, and the men use it. The women use it. This is, this is a way of life. Yeah. I, I remember being in Egypt a number of years ago and really struck by uh, the perfume bottles. Ah, Mm -hmm. I mean, they look like genie's lamps. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Glass and the different colors. And my goodness, I mean, that art form is exquisite. And, and then I was in Turkey as well and at the Blue Mosque and Clover. Mm -hmm. And my goodness, just beauty everywhere. You yeah. Look. And, the, and the carpets, you know, the carpets. And they, 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 they you, know, you really can't do that, but you know, they'll say um, that they sacralize the ground. And of course, the Muslims, they prey on the carpets also. But um, the fact is that, you know, that, that is what you, you know, you start from the ground up with this incredible beauty. And of course, Islamic art is, you know, aniconic. There's no, there are no, for the most part, unless I'm, like there are certain things like the Persian miniatures, things like that. But for the most part, there are no depictions of humans or animals or things like that. And that restriction forces them to bring out the sacred elements in, in other ways, you know, as opposed to say, you know, a Byzantine icon or something like that, um, which, is, which is also beautiful. Um, and of course, all because there was an, uh, an anti-iconic period in the, in the early church, most of the early Christian stuff is gone. It was all destroyed. Huh. So um, I didn't know about that. What, yeah, what was actually, that? It was, um, I can't remember the year. Sorry, the 200s or something why like did that. They have 300s. that. Why did they have that? Because they decided that you couldn't have an image. The image was blasphemous. So whatever group that was running at the time decided images were blasphemous. And then they destroyed much of the early uh, Christian art. Hmm. So, um, but that's, you know, that's the way. So uh, truth, beauty, and goodness mostly goes back most of what people talk about it goes back to Plato and Plato's what are called his ideals or his forms and what happened so so they're for Plato they they're it's it's hard to I have my I have certain issues with Plato and I want to get into them and try to be nice so um you know so but but there's there's he claims that there are there's there's another beauty past this world so for example in um in the uh the the the, the phaedo which is the dialogue which ha which is about socrates death right so he's you know so he has all his followers around him and um he's just um dismissed his wife with the baby uh, Xianpipe, I think, X-I-A-N-P-P-E, I don't know how it's pronounced. And, uh, you know, he's like, you know, come on, take her home, you know, I want to talk to my boys here, right? And, um, and she's carrying a baby. 
so so there's, so there's, there's the other thing I like to bring up is the fact that you know Socrates is supposed to be this aesthetic and you know completely removed from the world and he dies at what 70 71 and he's putting out children in his late 60s so we'll just we'll just let that sit where it is um so he tells what Socrates most of the time Socrates will talk about something or go on to a discourse with his students or get into an argument. And when he reaches the point where rationalism doesn't work anymore, he goes to myth, right? And this is, this is a common thing that almost all uh, professors of philosophy ignore, as far as I can tell. I mean, there's some people that talk, well, is it this myth? But then they rationalize the myth that he told because, because this is what they've done to him, all right? And, and for, you know, and there, there are reasons. There are quotes from Plato where, you know, it's about thinking and it's not about um, the experience living through the senses. So this is, this is a long, deep issue as to why Plato said these things. So Socrates, he, his last teaching um, was about, well, you know, here's a likely story. That's what he would say when, you know, I don't know if this is true, but he would say likely story. So the likely story is that we actually live inside the earth. And inside the earth, it looks like, you know, we have a sky and a sun and we have, we have all these things going on that make us think we're on the surface. But actually the real world is on the surface of the earth that we are inside. Sure. And that in that, on that, and he says, and if you go up that real world, and first he says something interesting too. He also says, well, if, you, if you're able to look at the earth from above, it looks like one of those soccer balls that kids play with, right? In other words, if you look at the way, I guess they're stitched the same way as they were back then, you know, it, and, and, and they were dodecahedrons, mm-hmm. right? And, and so there are plenty of uh, people who've done studies on the dodecahedral energies, how they, how they encompass the, um, the earth, you know, and the, mm. like the center point, the beginning point is, is actually from, is Giza. Right, so that's like place one, and then everything kind of emanates from that. That's interesting in and of itself. Right, so, so that's one part of his interesting part of his teaching because Plato, in the in the Timaeus, when he's talking about the construction of the world from beautiful triangles, and that the demiurge, the demiurgos, would make the um, was making the world out of triangles, but he had imperfect material, which is why the Earth is imperfect. So that's his story in the in the Timaeus, but in this particular teaching, Socrates says, "Well, look, if you could get to the surface, to the real Earth, and this is kind of like with his allegory of the cave, also, if you would get to that, you would the colors are are brighter, the shapes are more beautiful and more perfect. So, so there's this transcendent world above this world." And that would be people. He people call it the forms, the ideas. The, those are the, those are the terms, and some people also the um, what you call it the uh, I'm trying to uh, archetypes is the other word that, that that people use for what these are, right? So the problem, in a, in a nutshell, for me with Plato is that he they seem to get posited out there somewhere. Right, and they're outside of your experience, outside of your sensorium. You know, the senses are faulty. This is what comes out of comes out of Plato. So that they're, in a sense, unobtainable. 
through or you know there's no tradition of people obtaining it's not like people went through the mystery schools right and there was an experience you know people went to Eleusis for something like 900 years and there were you know I don't know it could have been the, the Telestrion was small but you could say they probably had 50 or 60 every year and we're talking about tens and tens of thousands of people experiencing something and never revealing 50 or 60 events thousand 50 or 60 people probably went through the initiation every year once a year or multiple once a year. times once a year okay. you could go back multiple times and you would sit in the back because right. watching okay. other people experience it revivifies okay. the experience within you okay. right that's one of the things about an initiation but even 50 or 60 is i would consider intimate Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. There was a that they can only go by the size of the the, the inner chamber of the okay. room yeah, yeah. where where it was held. So so the so the mysteries tradition had a particular experience associated with it, and um, so what Plato did. So anyway, so I guess we got to the point where Socrates is discussing this world out there um, that that's more perfect than the world. And in every way of this, and this is part of dying and dying in beauty and living a beautiful life, and you go, you, you go to that, you go to that place, right? It's this almost is the, like uh, a vision of heaven. Yeah, because, in the Christian yes, very construct. Much so. Okay, um, because uh, Plato would say, or Socrates would say, the the the, the, uh, the um, philosophical life is learning how to die properly, right? And you're living, you're living your life to have this death. With, with this knowledge, and then you go to this place, right? As Socrates says, this or something like it happens, right? So it's kind of, you know, curious. Mm. So, so, so the, the issue with Plato, so then, but there's no, there's no tradition of, 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 of anybody getting to this place through rational dialogue. Mm. right and even plato says in his seventh letter so he contradicts himself he says in his seventh letter you know the only way to get to it he says is they call it the unwritten doctrine the the um the dogma agrippa agrippa something like that agraphica the dogma agraphica the unwritten teachings so there's this tradition, Aristotle talks about it, of these unwritten teachings. And Plato himself in the seventh letter says that you can only attain this transcendent state, beauty, and beauty is one of his names for it, uh, the, the beautiful, through um, long philosophical study. And then he says it, it, it ignites like a flame within you on its own. Mm -hmm. right so but you've you've been spending your life setting up the conditions for it mm -hmm. so one would hope that that was an experience of plato's that he is relating here right um because you know because what what happens is and very few people talk about it the first person to talk about it was a guy named um dodds i think his name richard dodds he wrote a very famous book on greek philosophy called greeks and the irrational and what he was doing, what he did was took Greek Greek philosophy and 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 um, myth mysticism and and myth mythical tales, and made and and said you know and said there was there was a shamanic origin, 
to these tests and to these experiences that people were reporting, you know, in the pre-Socratics in the early days of Greece, right? And so that was what, so that was really what what this whole teaching was about was having this this transcendent experience. And then he says it, and then Peter Kingsley in his books, especially the book Reality, talks about it, and I've been writing about it that it gets turned and twisted and it becomes rationalism. And to make a long story longer, Rudolf Steiner, I'll try to shut up. No, 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 this is great. Keep going. Um, the Rudolf, so Rudolf Steiner also says it. So he also says, you know, so, so this guy Dobbs and Kingsley, Plato turned the mystery tradition into rationalism, mm. right? And Steiner says, agrees, says he did this, but of course Steiner has the whole thing of, of some sort of human evolution that he, that is behind really everything he does. And Plato, of course, does is not does not not anywhere that I can think of does not talk about human evolution. That's not a concern of Plato's. Right? There is talk of reincarnation and and coming back for but for Steiner, Steiner is what I call Golgotha centric. The the event on Golgotha with the with the deity dying on the cross is the central point of all of human history for Steiner. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's so everything is in everything has to reference that for Steiner. So Steiner says that what Plato did was externalize the mystery traditions, which is true. He wrote about them, but in, in, in code, and some of it in very, you know, easily to read code. Um, so he wrote about it that way, and that turned it into a, a rational system. And that rational system um, eventually uh, becomes, you know, uh, becomes more and more codified through time. Um, and and what, what happens is that, and so for Steiner, he says, well, this had to be because our, we had to go through this sort of mental phase and this rational phase where we were struggling to get to the real through rationalism. And my, you can't get to the real through thought, according to me, all right? I haven't seen it done. Um, and so, but this is what is being proposed. And this was what the whole object of philosophy, of, of everything, of science, of everything is since then 2500 years 2300 years to get through the real through thought right whether it's the thought of science the rationalism of science or the rationalism of philosophy and what has happened is that that's so a certain abstraction happens when you start using thought to get to the real rather than your your experience direct experience or than your direct experience mm -hmm. right you know you what you do with the with, with the mushrooms has nothing to do with rational thought no. you know but you have to use some aspect of it in order to express it and and all that sort of stuff right but you don't that's not how you get there no no and i have witnessed people come out of a journey and and just say i have no words that's a physical experience mm. yeah do not try to rationalize that yeah which is also why the um no one could ever reveal the secret of elusis because it was an experience yes 
you know, it was, it was, experience. it was an experience of a kind of light that was like a living light. That's the best anybody can really come up with it. Whether that was Demeter, Persephone, the goddess, somehow living in that space where they would experience it as light. And in John Lamb Lash's book, Not in His Image, he discusses that at length and he describes that light. It sounds as though he had that experience, the way he speaks. Oh, he says he has, yes. And that it, he he kind of compared it to like a marshmallow, sort of soft, white, luminescent, but alive and communicative. And that that light would, he used the word, I think he used the word, would speak, but I don't think, of course, it wasn't like speaking to the ears. It was an inner speaking. And um, we had a friend who I think you'd have a lot of fun interviewing who had uh, such an experience. And when I told him about John Lamb Lash's description, he lit up like a Christmas tree. He's like, oh my God, that's what I had happen. In the middle of the night, this light came into his room, lit up and communicated with him. And it led to a cascade of incredible changes in his life. And that's, that's a whole other story that we don't need to get into right now, but fascinating story. Mm -hmm. So this is a palpable presence. And it's not just in the imagination. It's, it's in that quasi state of in between physical, liminal. yeah, liminal, good word. It's in that liminal state, which I'm sure you know well. So I'm yeah. about the light. Yeah. So I, I don't know what, what but it's some seems, kind of, yeah. anyway, seems that, like that's what was going on at Eleusis. I guess that serves as some kind of introduction. So, so truth, beauty, and goodness, as far as I can tell, are three, um, three aspects of, uh, uh, of this sort of the same thing. All right. So um, like, so, so the goodness is, is the moral aspect of it. Right. So um you can even use that, and and wouldn't that be ethos when you like? Right, look? actually, it's ag um, the good is agathos, agathos, a g a t h o s is the word that I know of for 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 the good. Um, ethos is 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 the moral aspect also. Kalos is 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 beauty, and um, and aletheia is truth. Of course. Right? And Alethia, a lete, lete is the is the lake of forgetfulness that we supposedly drink from before reemerging or emerging into this realm, right? So Alethia is to not forget, mm. right? Because because the truth is, oh, we are that truth, and we have forgotten it, right? It's never it's never been is never not with us, right? So, so, so Alethia is to forget, and there are these, uh, these amazing things they're called the, the Orphic Golden Tablets. I don't know if you've heard of these, but they are. Um, no, have we never talked about So the they are. Um, Orphic, oh, they're wonderful. So they found them in burials. So, so there's, there's a long um, disputation as to whether or not there was an actual Orphic religion, because there were, there are no like temples to Orpheus, whereas, you know, there's temples to Apollo, things like that, right? So people don't, don't have, um, there's not much tradition, there's not much talked about it. There are, you know, a few texts here and there. So what was that? So 
that people say that there are a lot of like traveling seers who may have gone from place to place and, and did Orphic rituals, used the Orphic poetry, no one really knows. But what they started finding in burials in various places are these golden tablets about, I don't know, they're just various size, but you know, two, three inches by four inches, five inches. And sometimes it was on very finely wrought gold foil. Right, they're on the gold foil, that's why they're called the gold tablets. So it's so not a thick tablet like stone, it's no. it's like a metal, thin, right. thinly wrought metal. To, to quote my favorite John Donne line, like gold to, like gold to airy thinness beat. Um, my my uh, my 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 teacher in college said, "You're never gonna forget that line." So <laughs> and she's right. So um, so so on those were inscribed a variation of pretty much the same thing, and these things are found over maybe about a 500 year span from maybe or maybe 400 BC to 200 AD, 600 year span, something like that, maybe even more. And they found, I don't know, maybe about 50 of them. I'm not sure how many. Um, all across from the Black Sea through, you know, Greece, Turkey, I think even Alexandria, um, Sicily, Italy. So they found them all over the place, widespread. So something was going on. And they all say, covering that period of time, they all say basically the same thing. Say, I am a child of starry earth and starry heaven and I'm one of you, and take me to the lake of remembrance, not the lake of forgetfulness. Oh, I love that. And right? this is the message in the afterlife. Now, you can, now, they are said either to the guardians of the threshold when you pass, or to Persephone and Hades themselves. Yeah, like a passport. You know, yeah, and so it's like, and some of them are very detailed, you know, it's like, well, make a left at the cypress tree, and you know the white the white the cypress white cypress was yeah important. yeah so the white cypress was very important down there so anyway so you so 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 it's kind of like some people say don't go to the light right oh you yes know. pro pro tip yes. <laughs> don't go to the light <laughs> it's a trap right right so right. instead of going to the light you go to the source and this lake for full remembrance of of who you are and your divine center. Oh my God. And why isn't that taught in high school? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we know after my last episode, my goodness, because school has nothing to do with uh, enlightenment and actual mm -hmm. education. It's schooling. And Taylor Gott, John Taylor Gatto was very specific about that. He said, I don't call it education because it's not, it's it schooling. <laughs> No, and you think university used to mean that you got a universal education. Yeah, no, now it is. It's just a mark. Now it's business. You know, how can how can I succeed in business? Yeah. 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 So our young are bereft totally. of, of this absolutely exquisite and inspiring information that gives life itself meaning and purpose. And we have so many young just thinking life has no meaning. And you wonder why they're angry yeah. and depressed and suicidal. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. And that is one um, result of this abstraction and abstraction through rationalism. And you can mm -hmm. actually, you know, you could actually trace, trace that movement away from 
from from this innate understanding of beauty. And if you understand the beauty, then you you know you understand what's moral. You know, if you understand truth, you understand why morality exists. And if you understand the unity of of being, the the oneness underlying everything, well, how could you hate somebody? If, if you understand oneness, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You can only hate what, what you've been fractured and abstracted from, mm -hmm. you know? And, that, and, and you wind up hating yourself at the same time, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, which I'm sure you encounter. Yeah. So, so yeah, so they're intertwined in, in that way. And, you know, you can see, even see some of like the ancient quotes about, about, about beauty and they talk about it in terms of morality, right? And so, you know, the depictions, and I'm mostly knowledgeable about the Greeks, but, you know, even in the, I think it's similar in the Sanskrit and in the Indian culture, where actually one of the words for being is sat, S-A-T, or sat, actually, sat, S-A-T, and it also means truth. So um, in one of, one of the uh, um, uh, observances of, of classical yoga is called satya. And, and satya means observing truth at all times. And that means your words and your actions, you know, are the same. You know, that would be, that would be practicing sat. You know, it's kind of like Congress, right? So we, we, we get that sort of thing going on. Um, but it's also the word for being. Hmm. So um, um, like the, the, Om the, tat um, asat, asat, gamaya is a chant bring me from from the non-being to being is a little translation mm -hmm. of it right As, asatoma sadgamaya so take me take me from the, this this false understanding of reality and but it's actually it just means going so there's another thing when i trans when i translated it i realized that it's the, the the most of the trans all the translations say take me from from asat to sat take me from non-being to being but 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 that's not the way the prayers worked in the in the Vedic times. You never said, "Take me," like calling to some external deity to take you somewhere. It wasn't a, what do you call it? Supplication, right? Mm. Which is which is which is what Christian prayer is, right? It's actually going from being. It's just that's that's oh, what it is. It's just an action. Yeah, it's verb. just going. It's, it, there's no agency. Yeah, going from non-being to being, going from darkness to light, going. So you are uh -huh. chanting that within yourself to that's that it's the chant and the action of the chant are the same thing, right? Does that make sense? Oh, that's very good. Yes. So, yeah. so this is what, and so this goes back also to the, uh, we talked a little bit about the Parmenides poem at the, at the, the pre-Socratic Parmenides. And again, he was doing the same thing. It was an incantation about his trip to the underworld. It was, it was, you, the, the reciting of the poem induced the trip to the underworld where you would receive the knowledge from, from the goddess, right? So that was the way, so that's the way ancient chant works. And then you got Aristotle saying, why do these guys have to write in poetry? No, he you didn't know? like the poets. He didn't like, he didn't like the, Plato didn't like the poets either, right? But he's like, why are they writing poetry? Why can't they just talk plainly? They disparage the poets. Like a, <laughs> like a good rationalist. They sound like engineers. <laughs> well, right. So in academia, the yeah. Parmenides poem is disparaged because, well, he wasn't a very good poet because he keeps repeating himself. And the lines go, you know, the mares that carry me as far as longing can reach rode on. 
once once I was fetched onto the legendary road of the divinity that carries the man who knows into the vast and dark unknown. And on I was carried. And and it just goes on like this. And it goes down and yeah. then he meets the goddess. But it's the words that are carrying. It's that verbiage that is the movement, that is the vehicle, that vach. In Sanskrit, vach is the word for speech. And vach is seen as a goddess. It's V-A-C with a little hook underneath the C, making it like a C-H. Mm. So vach, and vach is a goddess, and that's speech. And they recognize that words create worlds. That well, the, your whole existence is a, an enchantment mm -hmm. that you, with your language, chant your world into existence, which is why words and speech are so important, especially with children. When you're around a child, if you have this knowledge and understanding, your words are creating, or they're going into that little person, into that body into that vehicle and they're mobilizing that body it like they mobilize our body we our bodies are mobilized through the frequency of the words that we utter yes and it's this one beautiful continuous understanding of how it all works and how it all hangs together mm -hmm. but it all hangs on frequency speech and then the knowledge behind the speech, there are three words, jhana, arta, and shabda. Shabda is sound. Arta is the thing in itself. And jhana is the knowledge of the thing. So embedded in everything that you see, touch, taste, when, you know, all of your encounters, those three qualities are embedded. They arise pretty much together at the same time as a package, but they can be distinguished. There is this thing that's sitting on my desk. It's a metal thing. Okay, what is it? Oh, it's a microphone. Okay, so there's Arta, the thing. Shabda, the sound is the word for it. But jhana means knowledge. And the jhana tells me what it is and what it does and how do I use it and how does it function. But when I now once I know this microphone and what it does, I don't have to go through those discrete movements every single time I encounter this thing. I know it's a microphone. I turn it on. It helps assist our voice when we're doing podcasts. Same with the light switch. You wouldn't know what a light switch was unless you had all of those three qualities functioning together as a vehicle to carry. So you walk into the room, you turn on a light switch. There was a time you didn't know what that was. You had to learn every mm. single thing. And all of that is the words, the speech, the vach, the sounds, the qualities that your parents and your community give to you about your world. And then that becomes concretized and reified into a very solid world, seemingly. But is it? All world and all worlds are chanted. And this map's also on the on the truth, beauty, and goodness, the Shabda Artanjana in a certain way mm -hmm. but all worlds as you know all worlds are chanted into existence and we and we can get into how this particular one got chanted into existence mm -hmm. but also you know i'm going to throw it back to you if you want if you know you know because the same 
same thing with the Vedic Rishis, uh, same thing with the, at least the initial part of, of the ancient Greeks, um, was with the Celtic Bard tradition. And again, they were chanting and they chanted a particular world into existence also. So, you know, so to the relativists to say, well, there's no such thing as an absolute truth, because we, we're discussing that this morning. Um, and and that's, a, that's a real important term, 1903, I think it's 1903, the theory of relativity and how art changes and everything changes after that, right? Um, and I think that's an important thing to go over. But- um, And that's the, a pivotal but, year but too. The, but the Celt, you know, so in other words, they chanted and the, the, the Rig Veda, um, Sayyid Nas, we talked about earlier, um, called it um, absolute, relative, re relative absolutes, right? And, and it's, it sounds like it's parsing, but really, the Celtic tradition had its absolute truth, right? For Not, the Celtic people. For the Celtic people, which was an experience, which was a lived life, which was a lived life of beauty, their particular form of beauty, okay. their particular form of truth, and, and yes, and their writing and their poetry, and, and their particular form of morals, right? So as is the Rig Vedic people had the same on, on all that too. They had their particular absolute truth for them right because everything is for something is there's it's nothing because otherwise there's no well that gets far away but yeah there is no independently existing world from us you know it's it's all run through us everything you know and that's why so and that's why they had these traditions that were as close to the divine vision as possible re-enchanted, re-enchanted, re-enchanted as long as they could. They always deteriorate, right. um, mm -hmm. unfortunately. And then they get revivified, right? By, by some other way. That's been the life of the sacred life of, of the world. So I think something was helpful, something in the Celtic world was going out, is still going on because I think that's something that, you know, you, t you tap into, mm -hmm. right? Does mm -hmm. it feel that way? Mm -hmm. poetry especially oh well yeah cherish. it's very alive for you yeah that they cherish their poets and yeah. you were talking about poetry earlier i think of it as it's a language it's a language it's like we in instinctively subtly shift ourselves when someone is going to read us a poem or mm -hmm. when we're going to write a poem it's not the same thing as just you know, writing whatever you're going to write. It's very different. It's true. And these, these academics are just, they're so, see, the thing is, they're just steeped in indoctrination. They're lost. They're lost. They're lost. I know I, I, I mentioned that a little bit in the second hour of last, of last week's episode, you know, that they just, yeah, they don't, see. And when I was attending early in my kind of psychedelic exploration, I, I was attending some of these psychedelic conferences and I would have conversations with certain people and I'd be scratching my head thinking, are you sure you've done the mushroom? Like, are we talking about the same thing? Really? Uh -huh. and they were the academics. And then, and I was talking about law at that time, I was just starting to explore it. And, and to me, it was just this incredible subject. And Gosh, you know, just sharing what I 
knew about it and what I was studying, which was nothing they teach in school and just being kind of shut down. Not kind mm -hmm. of, I was being, you know, shut down. Yeah. And, and the worst offenders were these academics. Well, uh, there it's a, it's a form of ignorance. It is ignorance of and bias and bias. And along the sister of ignorance is arrogance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, we, if we're mature adults, at some point, we may come to a realization of points in our life when we were ignorant of something. And because of that ignorance, we were arrogant. And I went through that. I had a realization at one point, a couple of years ago, that I had a perspective that was incorrect and um, not complete. Mm -hmm. And I was in whatever bubble I was in. And I wouldn't let any other information in that conflicted with my perspective at the time. And I would be argumentative. And then at a certain point, I literally woke up one day and everything changed. Mm -hmm. And I realized I had been ignorant. And mm -hmm. in my ignorance, I was arrogant. And then my perspective started to melt. And I was allowed to let in new perspectives that before I found repugnant. Mm -hmm. And so now when I come up against that in other people and it's quite um, concretized and firmly entrenched in a lot of us, I understand, I understand that they have yet to have their melting process. Yes. They need to be softened, but only life can soften them. You either see it from the inside or you don't. You may hear it. Uh, what is it that they call? Um, it's like when there's, um, you hear something auditorily, like someone's walking past you on the street and they're having a conversation, but there's a word that comes in that is relevant to you. Mm -hmm. that it's a message or some kind of oracle an oracle <laughs> so it's like this sort of an oracle and it, it can happen that way so sometimes when your guard is down mm -hmm. and you're relaxed and then some oracle comes in doesn't matter where it's from it could be from anywhere there's no way of saying but it comes in and you know it's a message for you it because it resonates yeah, and it breaks the spell. Right. Yeah. Right. So if you allow for that to grow and have some movement, then there can be a softening of the log jam. Yes. Right. And then yep. like <laughs> the, in, in 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 the in the yoga and in the Sanskrit, they talk about the ritu or the ritai, the 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 movement of life, the flow. It's a flow of life that is constantly flowing. And they talk about it in, in the pre-Socratics too. It's like, you can't step into the same river twice. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and this is wonderful practice that I love to tell people about and nobody ever really seems to take it up. But we learned in the ashram about this practice called the parigraha. Now, pari means around and graha means to grasp. It's like with your fist. You put an A in front of it, it's a privative, which means not. So not to grasp around, not to hold something so tightly, okay, that you let go. And so the practice was that we were to give something away every day 
we did this for a year and there was part two to the practice and part two was that you had to watch the movement of your hand when you did it so when you were handing something away or giving something or feeding the birds or whatever it was if your hand was always open or if your hand was always clasped shut that ritza or the ritu i never know which is the right ending is constricted and it's like in your body if there's a constriction in your blood vessels you have a heart attack nothing flows it stops the flow of life itself so you would practice this and then you begin to see the more subtle implications of that so it's not only it goes from the physical after the end of a year you realize oh i get it it's not just the physical i'm letting go of you to watch your hand open and close if your hands always open your hands always close you're paralyzed mm -hmm. but if you do this every single day and watch your hands opening and closing releasing and then you realize this is the movement of life itself then you realize, aha, that's on the physical. Now let's move inwardly and go up into the mental. So what ideas do I have that are congested and keeping me from moving on? And what, what are the thoughts and perspectives that I'm holding on so tightly that it's causing congestion and agitation? Okay, maybe I should let them go. And then it moves into more subtle, finer refinements but what a great practice it's so simple oh it's wonderful it's beautiful parigraha yeah. did it occur right. you know it has to be beautiful yeah to be true there you go right right yeah yeah well steve you mentioned 1903 i want to take you back to that because you said that's an important right piece. so you see, really see a change in art and the change mm -hmm. in in what is considered beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. So 1903, theory of relativity hits. And, um, you know, and that was a time when, you know, if you were a fairly interested person, you could know pretty much all there was to know about science. Uh, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but, you know, you could follow all the sciences back in the 1800s and be pretty well known, well, well, well versed in all of them. So theory of relativity, all right, its main tenet philosophically is that there is no absolute, everything is relative to everything else, All right? There's, there's only, you know, except, and, and then of course, this is being blasted now, uh, the speed of light, which was, uh, which is, you know, he's Einstein's boo-boo. But anyway, the, so, so, there's just that. So what happens in the arts, you start getting, say, Picasso. And then you have, you know, because it's a two paintings bad enough that you're trying to do three dimensions on a two-dimensional canvas, right? And and the ancient paintings didn't the ancient paintings didn't even bother trying. But you know, once you get to the Renaissance, you know, they have the um, perspective. The perspective, perspective machines and things like that, right? So that they were working on that to get the perspective oh, the camera to, to do camera lucid that's it to get to get you know that but anyway you know there were other things going on. it wasn't like you were trying to get a real norman rockwell picture you know there are other things going on there was proportion sacred geometry angles how things connect with everything else 
within the piece of art. Mm. You know, that was, you know, that was, you know, that's what all the artists is, that's why you had to go to school because you, you had to go to school to learn that, right? But then you got people like Picasso and people like that start, you know, de deconstructing and, and deconstructing the face. So you got seven noses, you know, four ears and, you know, this, the, the space is, is splattered around. You know, or you've got Monet painting like he's got a long brunch and brush and cataracts, you know, throwing a bunch of dots over there. Um, so you've got a, a fracturing of the image and of the, um, of, of, the, of the perspective, which was always the perspective of the viewer of the painting. Right? Okay, I just want to repeat those words, a fracturing of the image. That's a right. Fracturing. Yeah. This fracturing. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And then, so yeah, have, and we'll pick that up. That's an important point. And then you have in the um, novels, for example, right? So the novels, all of a sudden, you know, well, you know, you can't have the omniscient what they call what they what they then started calling the omniscient narrator, right? Who used to be the storyteller, right? But now it's the omniscient narrator, you know. And so they started, you know putting doubtful things in the, in the words of the omniscient narrator. And then all of a sudden you've got um, uh, William James's brother, Henry James, and you've got various perspectives or, you know, something will happen to undermine the perspective of the, uh, of, of the, the story of the omniscient narrator. Then you've got um, uh, the guy in the South, um, Faulkner, you know, who, who, who'd have seven or eight different narrators telling the same story and you've got uh, and then done again in his movie Rashomon by Kurosawa right which was like uh, five or six different perspectives on a single story right and so none of them are true right none of them even relatively true they're just they're just perspectives and you can you know what do you mean they're not true well none of them are the story mean? so you so you only only you can do so you're impossible to get in other words, you read um, whatever, Beowulf, you got the story, Gilgamesh, oh, oh, you got I the see. story, but you don't have the story uh, in Rashomon. You don't have the story. You just have different views. Because it's also it. malleable. It's, it's well, because it's only, you only can, you know, you can only like, you know, add the perspectives and, but the perspectives always contradict. I see. Right. You know, everybody's got their own right. perspective. Right. You know, which and you know where that leads. Right. Well, that we'll leads into, that. you know, it leads into the news today. And that's all, that's, that's how it's done. And I'm not a woman. You know, yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> I'm a kitten. Well, that's it. This is the fracturing of the perspectives. The perfection is the fracturing. Yeah. It's the fracturing of the, um, you know, it's, it's the frac simultaneous fracturing and, 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 um, and creation of identity. Okay, and can I at this point interject about Please. where that leads to? It, in my mind, it goes immediately to MK Ultra. Mm. Oh, drama based right. mind right. control, fracturing of the human mind right. to the point where you have alters that one category does not know what the other category is done, is doing, will do, is planned to do, has been programmed to do. This horrible nightmare that so many people on this planet have been forced to endure. Yeah, no, I think they're just doing it publicly now on- Yes, and now, it's, yes. It's, if you listen to Elise, our, our author, Elisa Weeks, who 
has her uh, MK Ultra book, um, and it's our life beyond our life in, beyond, beyond MK Ultra then and now. Um, she explains that this is being writ large now. So yes, it was a great project that worked so well. They got all the kinks worked out, and now it is writ large. So you've got the, the trauma-based mind control, starting with Jack, JFK being assassinated, all those assassinations. 9-11. At 9-11. And now it's like weekly. Yep, that's right. That's right. God forbid we have even three months no. of just, you know, grounded level kind of living. So that's, yeah, Just that's my interjection. Trying to get to the, trying to get to rake the leaves, you know. <laughs> <laughs> It's our yeah. joke. That's our joke. I can't get outside to rake the leaves. I've just so many interjections, so many, so many logs keep getting put in front of my train. I can't get out there to rake the leaves. So Chris, can you do? I'm so sorry to interrupt, Steve. One last thing. So yeah. for people, I don't think all the people who listen to what I talk about know even what MK Ultra is. I think a I number see. of them do. I think I like to think I have some very I do have some very sophisticated listeners. Sort of new to this kind of thing. So, mm. what is MK Ultra? Oh, it's so we unfortunate. We just had a visitor who didn't. <laughs> yeah, a visitor who's really smart who, who didn't know. Uh huh. Uh, it's 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 a very unfortunate development that took place within the U.S. intelligence agencies and the military. And I guess it started like with the World War II well, yeah. and Cameron. The, yeah, and and in the concentration camps in. Korea, Japan, wherever, where they would break down the person through, uh, and this this then, okay, they would break down the person through extreme trauma, physical trauma and mental trauma. And there is a point at which the human psyche protects itself. That this is so, out, such an outrage to the human condition that you cannot bear it. it. It is unbearable. No one can carry this burden. So what the psyche does to protect is it fractures like a mirror. And each, it's like, well, it's fractal. So each one is its own independent spinoff of the original. Then in the military they and the intelligence agencies, they discovered that they could program each one of these they could make use of those fractures. They could embed information. They Then that person could be what is called a mule, where they would carry, sometimes that term is applied to drug carriers, but it's also at that time was applied to people who would carry information, top secret information, because none of the, no other part of their brain would know this. So it was safe. They could have this person deliver with this woman, Kathy O'Brien, this happened with her, where she was fractured in this way from birth. They, they start this in, in the womb, this, okay, and at birth, this trauma. And they would embed this woman with information to carry to the president of Mexico. They wanted some top secret thing delivered to some place around the world. So there, there's that. And then there is an assassination altar where the person is is a trained assassin they would be sent in to do a job they do it they wake up in the morning they have no idea why their jaw is broken or their arm is broken because they were out you know executing someone 
So, I mean, essentially, it's mul it's multiple personality. Essentially, that's or, what it is. That's I mean, they just is. fracture you into multiple personalities, and they have not no understanding that there are any other personalities Correct. sharing the same body. Now, the, the codes to trigger them. Yes, right. the code Even. words like Sirhan Sirhan was said to have been trauma-based mind-controlled. Right, right. Okay. 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 And then they have handlers. They have handlers. They Someone have handlers, there. very strong handlers. And yes, so they're kept in this very tight framework and they're used and abused horribly. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens is by the time you reach 28, 27, 28, your first Saturn return, mm -hmm. 27, 28, 29, the programming starts to break down and memories begin to appear of what actually happened. This is a point at which the, the construct, the intelligence agencies see you to be a liability, but they have already programmed into you a suicide program. So a lot of these people commit suicide. Other times they will eliminate you themselves and they do what they call the snuff films and that sort of thing, where they actually will kill the person and now go away with them that way wasn't the overseer of this program the head of the psychiatric uh guy got, named got cameron gottlieb gottlieb what was it gottlieb uh, cameron there was a guy at mcgill university up in canada and that's kind of where it it formally starts so he was hired by the cia to to start running these programs it goes back to world war one where the term shell-shocked mm. came and they and they found that that they were working to try to understand oh, gee, these 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 poor miserable guys you know stuck in trenches and who are you know fractured and wrecked oh what can we do with them yeah you know and yeah. and um so that's where that's kind of where it begins in the modern era after world war one and, and the world korean war i believe there was uh, an acceleration yes. well yeah and the manchurian candidate right. stuff comes out of that, that. So, so it's a weaponization of the psyche. Oh, yeah. Of the most and horrific yeah. iteration and, that you can imagine. Yeah. And to, can I interject? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it actually comes from, you know, back to ancient Greece. So this, yeah, this is where it's. What's called memory theater. Right. And so in ancient Greece and then later and on, English. and it was famous. And then Giordano Bruno brought it back. Also, who was a medieval yeah. um, heretic, got burned, um, got uh, got Galileo to say um, um, uh, heliocentric. What is it? Oh, yes, I love heliocentrism. <laughs> right, I love <laughs> I love terrorists. No, no, I love terracentrism. Yeah, thank you guys. Right. You know, because they burned Giordano. Um, but one of the things he brought um, was he he revivified in uh, in and the Renaissance memory theater. So, so memory theater is, 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 so they designed, for example, the Globe Theater the Globe in Shakespeare's theater in time, because yeah. you'd be, you know, you'd have to have all these plays inside you, you know, the king, you know, because you're sponsored by the king and, you know, he's like, uh, yeah, I haven't seen, you know, Romeo and Juliet in a while. And you're like, oh shit, I got to know where, you know, and, and your memory of the plays and the lines and the characters would be in the theater itself. So various aspects of the theater. There would be mnemonic devices, and then you would associate. There would be word right. association with a visual, in like 
I guess above the stage, like they could look up or look to the left and there would be cues, mental memory cues for them. And and the Greek theater would be in the steps themselves. So each of the steps, there's usually like three sections. Yeah. And you know, they probably like, you know, one is, you know, comedy, tragedy, history or something like that. They would have them organized and each of the step would be a different play or a different playwright. So, so you would, so you would, as a practice, fracture your own mind and set right. aside these little compartments where the play could be retrieved for you. Okay. Yes. And so, and that's the genius of being human, right? That we have this incredible access. And of course, mm-hmm. the druids, the bards also right. would, that's would right. immense yeah. memories. Right. And then we have MK Ultra, which is the absolute just and the de- MK is, I believe, like the German spelling um mind control with a K. Right, right, right. Control, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So and so of course these evil beings, whoever is running things, you know, we want to, you know, I like to call them archons because that seems to fit best to me. Evil detrimental spiritual beings, they took what you said the amazing creativity of the human and yeah. flipped it yeah. and turned it and turned, it's and turned the fracturing. It's an inversion. They, they invert Everything's everything. inversion. Everything. They can't come up with a fucking thing themselves. Chica. That's right. No, they, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad we've, we've, we've got that. All right. We figured that one out. <laughs> now <Yeah>. what? <laughs> okay. Did you want to get back though to, was there more to say? I was going to add a couple of things. One to something you said about the about the law, uh-huh. right? And the law in the Greek times was something people did practice called incubation. Pythagoras did it. The ancient, the pre-Socratics did it. And what it is, you would lie in absolute stillness underground. In the dark. In the dark. And there, there were stories, and I can't remember the names offhand, uh, people, people who would be gone for months. And they would emerge from the underground with laws from the gods, right? And Parmenides, as we talked about, got laws, and he also got logic, which is which is a whole other story from from the goddess who, if she's underground, you would think it's Persephone, but she's not named; she's just called Theia, goddess. Um, so, so law itself, again, comes from the divine realms, comes from divine underground realms. And, and and brought through these bardic seer poet visionaries, right? Um, I just wanted to add one thing you said when talking about the oracle, about hearing things. Mm-hmm. It's the, um, there's actual uh, Hermes oracle where they had what were called herms, which is little square statues with a, with a carved head and a phallus. And they were everywhere in Greece and they, because they were guarding all the crossroads, entrances to houses, things like that. And there was a particular oracle where you would go and um, either either pray to Hermes at the at the Herm, and sometimes he he liked cakes. Apparently, they would make they had these <laughs> little cakes that they would put yeah, on the Herms, um, and then you would go from there into the marketplace, and the first thing that you heard was the answer oh. to your question. You would give your question to Hermes, then you would pray, and you go out, and the first thing you heard in the marketplace in the agora was the answer to your question. So, so there's an actual there was an actual oracle oh, that that correlates, you know, as a specific, to that whole thing. Yeah. yeah. So um oh, I love that. 
you know um so i don't know where we're at for we're at just a few minutes over an hour so i am and going i'm going to invite listeners to join us over at the mushroomsapprentice.com because the second hour is always just so rich just well, so because rich. you've laid the foundation now you can have a conversation oh. yes exactly if you, if you haven't subscribed it's it's well worth it and um and and also we also say we're proud publishers of right now two of shona's books mm -hmm. you know love and spirit medicine and uh Michelle. yeah um, both of them are, are are doing nicely for us and we're happy for that and happy to offer them to the world and and i have a book book called catabatic wind that was published in 2016 and which is mostly essays um and and then the one that it's it'll probably be done by the end of the year but i don't think it's going to be out by the end of the year so that's uh, that's the one on the on the, on the the covid the whole COVID years seen through uh, the ancient Greek sacrifice. Mm. And, and initiation. And initiation. That's Hermes runs the game. Hermes that runs, runs the game. The game. Thank you. So Steve's yeah. working on that right now and he's on the last chapter. Oh God, it's so good. It's so good. It so, is. So, I love it. Oh my God. I love the way he writes. I do. <laughs> he writes the way he thinks. It's, it's in the yeah. vernacular. It's There's jocular interjections and and beautiful artwork. I love the artwork. A lot artwork. of beautiful artwork, yeah. Even though at points we're talking about the apotheosis of the ugliness, mm -hmm. you know, which is the whole COVID era. Yeah. Right. And then the other book that is very close to publication is um, Mariam Hanane's book. And it's her last name is H-E-N-E-I-N, Hanane. She's a journalist, and she has written a book on the uh, background of the George Floyd debacle and how he was used and abused by the intelligence agencies. And um, I would say she is an amazing writer. I thought I had George Floyd fatigue until I read her book. Wow. And it reads like a whodunit. I couldn't wait until like, oh my God, what happens next? Really? This is what they did? But she actually purchased the video footage from the body cams of the officers who were in the ambulance. Mm -hmm. What was, I mean, you're right there in the ambulance. Whoa. Yes. She bought court records. She's got documents. It's an astonishment yeah. what this woman has done. That, that says so yeah. much about her because to be able to procure that, like you've got to be tenacious. She is tenacious oh, yeah. and she's very creative. She's a really good writer. I mean, you're, it's engaging. You yeah. want to know, wow, I didn't know that. Really? <laughs> and then- She has a movie out called The Real Timeline where she took all the footage. There's the footage that everyone knows that this footage. woman Darnella shot which is a single perspective. If you see it from behind, you see the knee someplace else, let's put it that way. Uh -huh. and, and, and then the body cam footage, and then there's footage from, from a, a place across the street. So she wove them all together in actual time sequence. So you know what happened. For example, George Floyd screaming, I can't breathe nine times or something like that before even Derek Chauvin shows up. You know, so all this stuff that was not released until after the trial because Keith Ellison and, and the boys kept their foot on it. And then they, they lied about the autopsy. Yeah. So too. stuff is coming out again now, even though it's stuff that we've all, all already known, at least we have. 
but yes. um, but anyway, so there's so that book's coming. So out. that's going to be a blockbuster, put, I think. Putting she's, the finishing touches wow. on that. Yeah. So that's it. That's, so that's, it. that's pretty much. That's it. it. Oh my goodness! That's <laughs> that's incredible. We'll yeah. see. We'll see. That's what why happens the leaves still need raking. That's why the leaves <laughs> still need raking outside. <laughs> <laughs> right, and the garden has not been put to bed. Oh well. Yeah, I just hired my 16-year-old neighbor to rake my leaves. Oh, <laughs> there you go. I'm too busy. I, like... I know. <laughs> I know. I love doing it. I, you know, I would rather do it myself. Yeah. But it'll get done. Yeah, yeah. Well, all right, you guys. Thank you for the first hour. And again, join us at mushroomsapprentice.com. And you will be in for a treat.